Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. I'm your host, Evan. And hello, my name is Tom. Hope you're all doing well. On this Evan, how are you? I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. Um, how was your week? So mm-hmm. I actually got good news this week. Basically, for my master's is on hold at the moment because I'm still uh, waiting to finish it. With a, I need to do a six-month internship project. And my last project was kind of cut short with the pandemic. And mm-hmm. I kind of didn't enjoy it as much because it was a company and I didn't really think I was getting that much out of it. Yeah, I um, remember that. Yeah, um, basically what they had told me to do. I wonder if any of them from the company will listen to it, but they were wanted me to test just known carcinogenic compounds and to see what the effects would be with uh, different cells of different types. And I just thought it wasn't that interesting of a project. So it kind of yeah. when the pandemic hit, I just said I was going to go home and leave it. But it's I had the, it wasn't a breakthrough science, was it? No, it wasn't um so yes so i was been looking for a new uh, internship since then but at the moment it's very hard because most labs want to restrict the amount of people in there in the laboratory and that's been hard but this week i finally might have something organized for my uh final year project so it will be hopefully in the hospital where i'm working um and they're hoping it'll be in relation to COVID-19 and coronavirus. So watch this space. Hopefully I could be coming up with some uh, <laughs> amazing new insights into COVID. And yeah, yeah keep listening. So you'll hear the new groundbreaking research is going to be happening. Yeah. I'm, very inter- I'm very interested in this and in your project. And I hope we'll be able to break down and criticize all of it as soon as you... Um, <laughs> As, you, as soon as you're gonna be finished yeah, with it. Yeah, it's it's it, and now it, the table turns is like, why did you do that? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They told me to do it. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but congratulations, man. Yeah, uh, I'm sure you must be uh, relieved. Yeah, and uh, having still, something secure. It's still not something. It's still not definite, but I'm I'm hoping it will be soon. Um, and then I can hopefully finish my masters and yeah, see. And what, we'll be equal. What, well yeah you'll have your phd soon i'm sure yeah, um hopefully. speaking of your phd I, we were talking uh, a few days ago i heard you had a bit of a freak out was it yeah it was uh it was a bit of a tough week two weeks i suppose uh uh experiments one on top of each other and i think uh, i was actually gonna bring this up anyway i think the fact that um i was separated from like a con- like from the contact with my supervisors didn't help either and i thought i thought in my head that i was okay but having like a gui- guidelines from my supervisors and being in touch with them on a regular basis like it was before covid has really has really a positive effect and i think my stress was just a result of this kind of a chaotic environment we found ourselves in but yeah. once uh, i sat down with my supervisors and we had a conversation and uh, i gained like a perspective and i know where the project is heading again i have directions i um uh, i feel much better yeah um so yeah i would recommend i i'm just gonna say to anyone who is doing any project right now either it is masters or phd uh stay in touch with your supervisors on communicate with them on the on the regular regular occasions because their insight and experience is uh, is really valuable um, and unless you're like a genius at the age 15, then you can just do everything by yourself. But if you're just like a regular person, yeah. 
yeah treasure these uh, these moments and what would you say to any other phd students who are stressed out or freaking out just yeah get in contact with the supervisor what what techniques should could they use uh i think so i was i'm this kind of a guy who believes that pull yourself by your bootstraps kind of attitude that if you if don't you want, feel you sorry for yourself don't feel sorry for yourself exactly and and as much as i like this attitude because it helps me to get through like loads of stuff sometimes just the stress is too much and having conver yeah and just having a conversation with your supervisor it's uh it's really helps because like it or not they know you so well like if i i'm there almost like 2 years so they know me they know what kind of person i am so just uh and having them explain to you that your stress and your fears are not are not really unique <laughs> unique or they not like they are real but they're not really real if that makes sense and just having them said that to you it helps a lot because i don't know like other people look at it or other phd candidates but every one of my supervisors like they, i look up to them so much hearing from them that it's okay that you're like you just you just overreacting or you're stressing too much not necessarily or put your energy somewhere else and just having just having hearing from them it helps yeah and and I, what i learned is they never they're not gonna say anything to you when you ask for help like this is what they are there for and they are always happy to help you so if you're ever afraid of asking for help because you think they're gonna think that you're dumb or anything like that don't don't think like that they actually are there to help you and most of the times they're happy to help you you know that's yeah. that's how it works yeah that's good yeah, yeah so uh, i'm uh, i'm gonna be very fresh coming into work next week ready to tackle off my experiments yeah um yeah so happy and excited again thank yeah. you yeah one other point before we go into the headlines i was sure just, i wanted to say um about how i really find like it's everyone's just talking about the coronavirus and the pandemic in every conversation and it's so weird when i'm like with my friends or we're just with my co-workers and we end up talking about it and i'm i end up saying oh i discussed this on my podcast and <laughs> uh it's just so weird because i'm like not trying to push the podcast or anything but it's just like inadvertently i like I, I and i'm just thinking to myself i i just talked about this and i'm sure they're like oh my god he's cannot stop talking about his podcast and i'm like no it's just this if you listen to it you would you would understand like i talked about this maybe give more context yeah, so, yeah. it's a bit weird <laughs> but it's a nice feeling you know when yeah. um when like when you, when you hear people talking about because we've covered the covered a little bit at this point and when you hear people talking and it's like oh yeah i, I sort of know little bits about that and yeah like oh yeah that's just basic news to us <laughs> yeah we're above everybody yeah yeah before before we go into the headlines as well this today on today's episode um i'm going to talk about uh, covid in the school settings since a lot of kids are going back to school at the moment uh like children and teenagers i kind of wanted to just kind of give a a rundown of what the facts have been about spreading in a school setting and trying to give a bit more information um because there is so much at the moment it's very contradictory um and at the same at the same time i still think i don't have a concrete answer about whether it's safe or not i don't think you can really do that at this stage but i'll mm. just try and lay out the facts for people and hopefully you can uh come away a bit more knowledgeable so I, yeah 
are you gonna be a little bit like Ben Shapiro when facts have no feelings? <laughs> Is that what he says? I never heard. That. I think that's what he says. Okay. But anyway, and uh, I gonna talk uh, about something else than COVID nineteen today. Uh, I want to tackle the concept of personalized medicine and uh, or uh, tailored medicine. And as an example, I want to use paper that was published back in two thousand nineteen. Uh, patient customized oligonucleotide therapy for rare genetic disease. So I think this paper is an excellent example showing how. And uh, what does that mean in one sentence English? <laughs> it means how a drug, uh, um, a genetic based therapy drug was developed for a single patient. And this is an example of uh, medicine being tailored for just one person rather than having a medicine that is addressed to like a population okay okay yeah sounds really interesting i think this is kind of might be the way of the future i hope so because this is where i this is the field i'm working with so <laughs> earn a lot of money well it's not about the money it's about saving lives saving lives oh yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, um so on today's science news what have you seen what was What's piqued okay. your interest? So I, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep in the topic of uh, medicine and curing diseases, and I have uh, potentially great news. So my first si news in science is titled "It's official: Africa has been declared free of wild polio virus." Oh yes, I heard about this. You heard about this on the yeah, news. So on the news. <laughs> okay. So um, actually, on Tuesday. Um, WHO declared Africa uh, was free of wild polio virus. And just to give a little bit of perspective, the Kick Polio Out of Africa campaign started in 1996. And uh, at the time, the polio virus paralyzed an uh, estimated number of 75,000 children yeah. on, the, on, the, on the continent every year. And, um, and, uh, and the continent, Africa, has been reported a case-free uh, since August 2016. So they gave themselves a little bit of time uh, to announce that uh, wow. Africa is uh, polio-free. But it has finally happened. Nice. Um, yeah, maybe uh, for people who don't know what polio is, it's a, it's a very it's an infectious disease caused by a polio virus. It's an it's a RNA virus. It starts infection with the uh, tonsils, the lymph nodes, uh, and work its way down to the intestines. And once it kind of uh, uh, replicates there, it get, gets inside the central nervous system. And once it gets there, it causes a real damage. It causes the paralysis and, and what's not. And, uh, but the vaccine has been developed in the 1950s and it's now uh, commonly administrated to the newborns so uh, i don't think there is much polio problems in the developed countries but it was a problem for africa and uh, just to achieve this goal to actually eradicate polio it's a great success uh, both in terms of uh, redis redistributing the vaccine but also for all the people involved who are uh, collecting the data for all the epidemiologists to uh, so great effort put all together into this project and finally uh, another disease is eradicated well hopefully but, will remain eradicated it hasn't been eradicated worldwide though it's just been in africa it's still it is still present yeah so i think in 2018 there was 33 cases of polio worldwide i think so yes oh. so we i think we are we are pretty pretty close 
So hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully one day it will be worldwide eradicated. Well, it just shows that um, with a good vaccine um, program, it has such good implications and uh yeah just just a good positive story but like this yeah. is the stuff that people who are anti-vaxxers wouldn't look at at all they'd be like oh that's just that's fake or, news or it didn't exist or something mm. like that whereas they just look at all the bad the bad stuff like the very very rare case where something bad might happen with a vaccine or the fake already yeah disappro- disproved um papers yeah so they- it, they just do it they just do it that way they they will mention that a polio vaccine could cause some sort of adverse effect in people and cause paralysis but this is like one case per a million or even more uh, mm-hmm. whereas they won't mention that uh, a huge group of people who contract a polio virus especially at a very young age they almost like a huge majority of them ends up paralyzed so yeah you know there is there is the risk of getting paralyzed from polio and there is a an extremely small risk of having adverse reaction to vaccine which potentially can and and does saves lives yeah, yeah do you ever see the video i think i'm not sure if it's polio but it's because it disables your 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 lungs your you can't your lungs don't function because you i think it's like yeah your your nervous system is damaged mm-hmm. so basically they have to put them in this device that's like a vacuum and it like it'll make it helps them breathe but they're like stuck in the in the device so you just see their head oh, wow. but their whole body is in the the machine oh wow um and i remember i think i read the story about this guy who he got polio when he was a kid and he, yeah he was in the machine since he was very young and then he started go seeing this i don't know was it a physician or a medic medical doctor and she tried to help him do these techniques to try and help him get more time out of the machine because basically yeah, he was stuck in it so she was like okay i want you to try and uh just force your i don't know how he what exercises he had to do but it's like he had to breathe just force air into his into his mm-hmm. lungs like you have to swallow the air something like that to get his lungs in fit inf- inflated so um it was really inspirational in a way like how he and then he was gradually able to spend less time in the in the oh, wow. in the iron i think it's an iron lung chamber or something like that yeah i think please okay, i haven't me. heard of that <laughs> yeah but it's it's a it's it's a it was a crazy device that that to use back in the time when yeah polio yeah. was more common so yeah it's crazy it's crazy but uh yeah hopefully we're on the right way yeah yeah um so uh for me one of the headlines again was a very significant headline was again in america and that the us fda has approved convalescent plasma for emergency use in hospital patients with COVID 19. so i had mentioned this i think in episode two how the it's a recovery trial in the uk with the nhs were looking at convalescent plasma but they still hadn't um approved anything it was still like a a randomized trial which is what they were Mm -hmm. doing whereas now america they haven't even got that far and they're announcing that it's going to be be used oh wow okay so what do you mean they haven't got that far they haven't conducted any trials or anything and they just decided to go for it no no so what happened was it was a a a preprint of a study was published on the 12th of august and it examined whether convalescent plasma reduced the mortality uh, and it included 35,000 patients. Um, mm-hmm. The study hasn't been pre-reviewed yet, but it said earlier use of this convalescent plasma was associated with lower rates of 7-day and 30-day mortality. 
and the use with higher antibody levels were associated with a seven day and 30 day reduced mortality. So the experts say that although these early findings show promise that there is not enough evidence to show that it works. Uh, and the guy who was the lead researcher for the recovery trial, which is comparing the treatments, as I have said, mm-hmm. um, said that there is a huge gap between theory and proven benefit, and that without <laughs> randomized controlled trials, we simply don't know if it works. And he basically condemned giving patients an unproven treatment and said if it, just a few thousand patients were to be randomized, we would have an answer already. At the moment, it's had been approved on a case-by-case basis by the FDA in March, but it's since been used uh, on 70,000 patients. Uh, oh, okay. So, so it is in use. It is in use, yeah. And uh, convalescent and plasma is basically re- recovering plasma from people who have been infected and have developed the antibodies, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was looking this up. Basically, to be eligible to donate, you have to have confirmed with SARS-CoV-2 an interval of at least 14 days after full recovery uh, and yeah you just donate the blood and then the plasma is just extracted but again like i always find and you've worked in a blood tra- tra- blood transfusion yeah, place blood that bank. yeah you don't want to be given someone bodily fluids is that the right word to use without yeah, no because well, yeah. you don't you can't say for sure that it's completely disease free you can't test for everything so you want to reduce the risk but the FDA has concluded that the plasma recovering patients is way out with the benefits outweigh the known and potential risks. So, I think know. I think one of the main things is how they're gonna go about collecting the plasma because uh, if they decide to make it profitable in the in the way that they will pay people for donating plasma, that directly leads to uh, certain people taking advantage of that. Yeah. And you know, and uh, it could, it could, uh, in in it could have a downside to it that certain infections gonna get through, certain people with infections gonna come through because, uh, because they need money and stuff like that. So, I I would imagine that if they're gonna collect these from uh, the populace, it's gonna be on the basis of um, blood collections. Yeah. At least how it is done in Ireland, it's a voluntary donation where you go through battery of tests before um you before your your blood's gonna end up on the on the shelf yeah yeah so yeah there's always it is always a risk mm. so but yeah this emergency use approval allows clinicians to use unapproved medical products to diagnose treat or prevent serious or life-threatening diseases or conditions when there's no adequate approved and available alternatives but i think in this situation there is some alternatives it's not they're not the best i suppose but most well you 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 excluded cyclohexamide in the very first episode so that's not really an yeah. alternative anymore and we already said remdesivir is yes. it really so yeah maybe you're yeah. right <laughs> but just chopping heads we'll see i will i'll be just more interested to see how the recovery trial what they find because this is actually a randomized tro- control trial whereas mm. they haven't done a randomized control trial with this in the american trial so uh yeah that's just wait and see i mean everything everything that would that can that can help people overcome this disease and it's safe i think every possibility should be tested and convalescent plasma is definitely one of them yeah like we need um it's about the time we get some uh, we get some edge on this disease or we get some advantage Mm. yeah true
So what else have you, what other headlines? Another good news. It's, um, I mentioned it to you already. And then I said, oh no, don't disregard what I said, but it's actually true. FDA approves clinical trial of HIV genetic treatment. Oh, right. Yeah. So I thought, I thought I made this up and then I went <laughs> looking for it and I was like, no, okay. I actually saw this. So it is, it is happening. It's true. It's um, not all in your head. No, it's not all in my head. So FDA has given the go ahead for a phase one clinical trial of a gene therapy treatment that has the potential to cure human immunodeficiency virus in patients. So we know that HIV has been around since the uh, 1980s. I think that's safe to say that that's where really that pandemic, that plague started of um, HIV. Rocking it since the 80s. Yes. And uh, HIV causes the um, AIDS disease. Basically, uh, HIV virus attacks the immune cells, and that's why it's so hard for the immune system to fight HIV because they, they can't recruit soldiers anymore. Yeah. And um, the, way to, uh, the way they want to tackle this virus is they're going to uh, take the uh, CD4 T cells that have already been uh, exposed to the HIV uh, virus, so they are... Uh, so they are already triggered to recognize HIV, but if you just put them uh, into the patient, it, they're not going to really do anything else except for die because if they're going to get infected with HIV, they just, the virus is going to burst them. So it's not going to be any effect. But this, uh, this new treatment, it wants to use a viral vector, which is a lengthy virus vector. Uh, this vector is to be injected into the uh, uh, T cells where the lentivirus vector inserts genes for HIV protection into the chromosomal DNA of each cell. And uh, this process creates a permanent modification capable of reducing cell surface expression of the CCR5 protein. I don't know if you remember, but the CCR5 was the gene that was deleted in the CRISPR babies. Oh, right. So, um, but it, what's, what's the CCR5 do in relation to, is that what HIV binds to, is it? Yes, it's a it's a co-receptor for HIV attachment and entry. Oh, okay, so uh, it deletes this viral vector deletes this receptor. Uh, re it reduces its expression. Uh, so I don't know if that means complete deletion or reduced um, surface expression. I'm not sure, so I don't want to say that it completely deletes it because um, because I don't know. Yeah, so basically that's the that's the new uh, that's the FDA approved clinical trial, and I was just trying to read a little bit more about it. Uh, experts are saying not to put too much hope uh, <laughs> into it because it is just phase one, and oh, loads okay. of loads of drugs fails at the phase one. But having a having a genetic treatment in development for HIV, I think this is uh, something exciting, although. The antiviral drugs that are currently on the market, they, uh, as far as I know, they are they are pretty yeah. efficient, because I think people can people who are infected with HIV can live normal life with extremely low uh, yeah. viral loads due to the antiviral therapy. Yeah, I don't know much about the side effects to these uh, antiviral therapies. I would imagine if I would imagine that there is not a huge side effect if so many no. people are, are on them. Uh, but having another another way to target or to win, to win against the disease, it's definitely exciting. And uh, the research on its own must be really interesting, uh, trying to eliminate the expression of CCR5 protein. But it seems like at this stage, yeah, the treatment already existing is so successful. Um, you really wonder, is there much of a market to really um, develop any more treatments? Maybe it'd be better just to look at preventative or 
other methods or vaccines or yeah well hmm, i don't in case in case you can develop some sort of uh, resistance or immunity to the antiviral treatment but again i'm not i'm not sure about that uh i wasn't looking that deep into the hiv which could be on its own a possible topic for the next discussion but uh, I just looked into this cl this clinical trials for this genetic treatment. Mm. I would wonder, because as well, um, is it that they take out the T cells from the patient and then introduce the lentivirus, or is it like a, a, an injection or something? No, like as that? far as I as far as I understand, they take them up from they take them out from the patients because they want them to be already uh, HIV directed. So they. They don't. I don't think they're looking for like oh, naive okay. CD4 T cells. They want them. They want them to be uh, actively uh, searching for the HIV virus and uh, and start initiating the immune response, which is uh, you know recruiting the of the T cells, activating macrophages, so for so on, so on. But having just uh, HIV specific CD uh, CD4 T cells. And growing them in high numbers and injecting them back to the body, it would be just like adding fresh target for the virus, which is in essence is just adding fuel to the fire. Yeah. So I think they need that genetic modification to to in in an essence become invisible for HIV. It's like putting the putting the um, what's the thing from the Harry Potter that he was putting on? Oh, the invisibility the cloak. That's it. That's what you're doing. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I just think would because the existing treatment so successful would many people be like oh go through a whole process of having to get their blood taken getting this modification done which most probably is expensive uh, but if it is successful then you eliminate the hiv virus whereas with the antivirals you are just keeping mm. an extremely low virus load mm. so you know there is that to it that you actually become hiv free but the other one thing I want to say as well, and just being a skeptic, um, <laughs> because you're modifying genetically, so there's always a big risk of like cancer, isn't there? Like increased risk of cancer if you're modifying some something genetically, so with a, a virus vector. So yeah, that's another thing I'd be interested to see. Do they find uh, that? Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully these things will come up in the in the phase one, and if if there's any red flag, I think the uh, they should. They should either stop the trial uh, or go back to the drawing boards and and see what can be improved and what can they do differently. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. Final headline for me is about how obesity has a higher risk of mortality m much more than was previously thought. So in this study, um, it was a collaborative effort between the University of North Carolina, Saudi Health Council and World Bank. Mm -hmm. And they showed that it increased the risk of dying by fifty percent. Just, just, just mortality on its own, uh, as well as that. Um, so, just in case obesity was defined as a person with a BMI over thirty, and mm -hmm. this was a meta-analysis, so it was bringing together data from many studies carried around the world, including China, France, Italy, the UK, and the US. I so, think China. I think China was the control group, right? Because it like. They just <laughs> they're all skinny slim yes <laughs> well whoever was maybe a, a bit overweight i don't okay. know um so the the risk of ending up in a hospital was increased by 113 percent if you're obese if you oh. had if you were had covid um you had a 74 percent increase in admission to intensive care and again 48 percent or roughly 50 percent 
increased risk from death from COVID. Um, so yeah, I haven't seen the study, the paper. I just seen this in the paper, so I don't know how uh what how they carried it out or was there any flaws. But looking at it, it's pretty stark how big of a impact obesity is in your um prognosis yeah so yeah it's interesting i will will pick i will pick a fight though on this topic because i'm not really sure if a bmi is the best way to measure yeah that's true you know by these standards uh arnold schwarzenegger is obese uh yeah joe rogan is obese by these standards i am obese and you know, I might look like a potato, but I'm not <laughs> obese. And uh, <laughs> okay, stop getting so defensive. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, what else I was going to say? Uh, yeah, I'm not surprised that the obesity is linked to all of this um, severe effects because coming back from the hunters gatherers that spend most of the time running, yeah. our bodies are not, you know, adjusted or well functioned to just uh, gain weight and yeah. maintain the same. Uh, level of health so i can i'm not surprised at all to see these results coming out and they say like this means that um especially in this category of patients that a vaccine mightn't even be as effective um so yeah it's just just something to be aware of i think uh boris in the uk is definitely trying to focus on helping getting people to lose weight but um it's very easy to say oh go and lose weight and then not really bring in any programs or incentivize it so yeah it's it's kind of it's a tough because no one has really ever brought in an effective way of tackling obesity and um it's a it's kind of and i think it's it is a kind of a a mental it's a mental aspect to it rather than just a physical one so um and in in some circles it, it is kind of an addiction so yeah, uh, but at the same time, it's not thought of as an addiction like drugs or or alcohol or any other ones. Yeah, it's still not kind of thought like that. So, yeah, it's a, there's a lot of a lot of different discussion points, I suppose, with this. Um, yeah. It's not straightforward. Okay, is there any other headlines you want to go into? No, before we I no, go I into just our had main these stories. Uh, sorry, yeah, sorry for interrupting you. No, I just had these two uh, positive news. Perhaps, uh, do you want to kick <laughs> off the main discussion? Yeah, so before we get into their main stories, uh, just some quick comments about last episode where I was talking about the mRNA vaccine. So since then, there's been two responses to the paper, and I just oh. wanted to kind of address them yes, here yes. so um, we can see what you think. The first comment that was made was DNA and RNA vaccines against mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-19. Um, basically, they'll continuously stimulate cellular production of the target antigen um that's kind of how they work mm-hmm. uh, they say that a mechanism is required to be able to stop this antigen production after a period of time to avoid the possibility of eventual desensitization which has been seen before with allergen immunotherapy which is kind of a similar um principle where it uses the allergen to kind of stimulate your uh, a different site type of your immune response so you don't become uh sensitized to the allergen so you're basically you want to stop the you only want the the rna or the dna vaccine to kind of stimulate it against the coronavirus but then you don't want it to keep making an immune response because then you'll become desensitized and then you lack a, a sustained response 
and you need to be able to evaluate this before you can really declare it the vaccine safe. So they haven't really responded, they didn't respond to this uh, comment yet. Um, but yeah, that's something, one thing to consider. Uh, and another thing to consider was IgA levels, because IgA is a crucial first line defense in mucosal tissue. And it would be important to investigate whether IgA levels against SARS COVID 19 were increased because of the vaccine. Um, and because, yeah, SARS COVID 19 infiltrates the mucosal tissue, uh, you would need IgA against this to be produced for full protection. Um, and they say that ACE2, which is crucial for binding of COVID-19, mm -hmm. and then transmembrane serine protease 2, which is crucial for its uptake, are expressed both in nasal and intestinal cells, which is areas where you actually have naturally IgA present. It's like the first immune response that your any pathogen encounters. If you can bind to the virus there, you can stop it from being taken up by these cells and then you can stop the infection from occurring. At the moment, it's when it, the, when it enters the cells that the IgG will have its effect. Whereas you, if you have the IgA levels, then uh, you, can, you can really re reduce the risk of it um, get infecting the cells and reduce the chance of infection. So it's not it's not just IgG IgM. It's also the IgA yeah. group of antibodies. So they replied saying, "Yeah, this will be need to be further investigated." But it was unsure if they were going to publish this in their full report. And so, yeah, I don't know. So again, these are some other things that should be weighed up, I suppose, in these vaccine development. Mm. Um, and it was just interesting to see what other other scientists maybe had to say about it. I'm. Um, it's for me the 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 break the 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 stop signal is interesting. How the and the and if it's not there, the consequences of being desynthesized. This mm. is uh, yeah interesting for me. How they gonna how they gonna address uh, that? Address that? Yeah. And whether whether they have thought about this before? Yeah, um, yeah. Because I I wouldn't have thought it, and I would have been just like, oh yeah, it's fine, but if you give the vaccine and you give the boost i thought they was probably would assume it would taper off as the levels decrease but but i'm not does, really okay. sure uh, stick with me for this one uh maybe i'm wrong but if they okay so they're injecting the mrna vaccine so it's based on the mrna mrna gets uh legated or gets into the cell genome and it starts expressing the the spike protein yeah and so then the MHC complex has to express the spike protein uh, for towards the T cells or towards the B cells for them to be activated, right? In a way, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. So would not wouldn't that cell be targeted for destruction then, or is would that not be? Yeah, in but a that's way... just that's just how it kind of like it, I suppose you still need to have an encounter for your immunity to kick in and then your antibodies produced and a t-cell response you still need to get kind of an infection but you're hoping that this uh mrna vaccine won't be as severe it'll just give you the the full immunity but will not without the effects well all you really need is to it's to it's to get the memory cells right i suppose yeah you want the memory cells because then when it doesn't counter any the true virus yeah it'll just give the immune response and you won't get the serious effects. So 
Um, but obviously, this must be something that needs to be considered. Yeah, and the the IG the IGA thing is also interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, I never really thought about that either. So yeah, it's kind I of interesting heard those rules. Uh, to have another perspective on it. Okay, will you will you you're gonna keep us on track about this? Will you? Yes, I will. Yes. And, okay. Uh, yeah. So for this episode, I want to just kind of talk a bit about um, how coronavirus looks in a school setting, especially so topical because a lot of people are going back to school now, and what is kind of known. Um, and yeah, just give more context. So, uh, and I basically I want to look at it in children or how they're capable of spreading the virus in comparison to teenagers, and is there much of a difference? So, mm-hmm. I think earlier in the week or a few. It was like a week ago, uh, it was reported in Germany that there was at least 41 schools in Berlin that had 825 cases. That was just barely two weeks after having been reopened. And according to the report, all age groups had been affected. And again, this just underlines how little we know about the risk of infection within the school settings. Because as the children in Berlin, they are obliged to wear face masks in hallways, during breaks. And when they enter the classroom, I'm sure they use disinfectant on all the surfaces they hand sanitize all the time but again like a bit like the meat factories we just don't know how it kind of interacts uh how much space should be given so yeah it's just kind of a bit of an unknown um yeah and they I, they, they think that basically the students and teachers should be wearing face masks all the time during lessons so um it's kind of tough to know what should you do yeah and you you mentioned the you know the then i think you mentioned there um like the the teachers and students being in the same room and we already know that there's the the classes it, there's too many people in the class even before covid uh there was too many students per class and yeah. now how you, how you going to redistribute this student how you going to work about but um yeah so it is a problem yeah so um what kind of there hasn't been a huge amount of papers published or anything about the whole the the transmission of the virus within these settings but one of the one papers i did found was an epidemiological study in france did i say Mm -hmm. that word epidemiological study in france (laughs) where they uh wanted to investigate how much the virus had been encircling in this town in the northeast of france uh as the town's middle and high schools have become the center of a new outbreak so this was earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. So in the town's high school, 38% of the students have been affected with 43% of the teachers and 59% of non-teaching staff. So this was looking at the antibodies, not just okay. like positivity rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so this mightn't be the best idea, but just to kind of give a rough estimate. Uh, and then in comparison to this, six primary schools where there are just 9% of primary age students, 7% of teachers, and 4% of non-teaching staff have been affected. So uh, lower infectious rate in the primary schools? Yeah, yeah, a lot okay. lower. A lot lower, yeah. And then yeah, it was another study in South Korea. This found similar results, which showed that ten- children aged 10 to 9 can spread the virus as well as adults, though those younger than 10 transmit it often much less. Um, and they had concluded that teenagers seem to be just as infectious as adults, but that for younger children, it's not the same. But again, now this is kind of this has been done before all the the schools have kind of come back. So now 
this happened in Berlin and they're saying it did have it just as effective transmission whereas now this study had thought oh the younger children didn't have as much of a risk of transmitting so it's this thing is so ever so evolving mm-hmm. yeah but the one of the things they're still not really sure why younger kids aren't really affected it they think that it may be because the vast majority of these young kids are asymptomatic or have very mild symptoms when contracting COVID-19 when in one large pediatric study in China mm-hmm. 94% of cases were classed as being asymptomatic mild or moderate so children again just very little effect from the when they do get a positive result so perhaps they could be just releasing smaller amounts of the virus into the environment because they don't really have the symptoms like they don't be coughing or sneezing so that could be why they maybe don't transmit it as much Mm -hmm. again but it's it's kind of odd as well because children are generally uh, more likely to be affected easier than others because they don't they have a lack of existing immunity but again, this mm-hmm. was seen in the original SARS outbreak in 2003 when children were largely effect- unaffected. So it's kind of interesting how this coronavirus seems to work. So back in 2003, children with, were not affected. But with this virus, it seems like they are getting affected. But the... Uh, no, the... no. It, 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 I think in both cases, the children were largely unaffected. Largely it's just unaffected. they weren't... Okay whether they're transmitted is kind of not really sure or clear mm. uh, in that original SARS outbreak there was less than 10 percent of those children were diagnosed and only five percent required intensive care um mm. again they re- think it might be due to the ace2 receptor um yeah, because yeah. it's lacking in kids and so again it's harder for it to enter the lungs so maybe that could be a reason yeah and i think you you when when you mentioned that they don't display symptoms and there is no there is no cough and there is no sneezing that that actually can in fact cause a lower transmit transmissibility of the virus right because if you don't cough you don't sneeze you don't release that much uh, viral particles so yeah but that's that's exactly why they think yeah that's... they aren't really spreading it because they don't show symptoms but it's the same time uh in adults there's a lot of people are asymptomatic or and they're still spreading it just as well like i don't know how i'm unsure how but yeah it just it's just weird in a way um but like again this is just one study and then again in real life they're saying another thing so i don't know has Um, the has the who or cdc or any organization come up with any sort of guidelines or or uh, anything for the schools how to prepare itself or you know, is there going to be regular temperature checks every time you come in or? I I think um, they they say like that for younger than 10, I think they're not uh, saying face masks are necessary. But I think older than that, you you you're, they recommend to wear a face mask um, and they're saying that um, you should uh, wash your hands um and again social distancing but again it's just so difficult in young kids like how oh, do definitely. you really implement it yeah but the, another thing they were saying was a reason why again kids mightn't be as affected as well as because they have a lack of immune system ironically because 
Um, it's usually due to a, yeah the excessive strong immune reaction, with known mm-hmm. as the cytokine storm. And then, yeah, they uh, so far like kids have only accounted for like less than two percent of total COVID nineteen cases. And even with children with comorbidities, mortality is still very rare. And they think that most acquired infection in children are from close contact with adults in family clusters and that mm-hmm. transmission from children's to others was rare. Um, in a, a WHO China Joint Commission, this could be uh, controversial. Uh, and this was carried out looking at the original outbreak in Wuhan back in February, and they didn't actually find a single instance of children transmitting it to adults. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Be, so on the one hand, of that. yeah, but like on, if if this is true, if they don't transmit to adults for whatever reason, uh, then what's then then everything is okay. Just send them to school; they're gonna be okay because even if they get sick, they don't. They don't. They're not yeah. gonna transmit. I can see how people can think that way. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think it seems. It seems like that because if they, yeah, exactly as you said, like if they're not getting symptoms and they're not really spreading it to to adults, I suppose maybe if they spread it to each other, it's not as bad. Yeah, because as but, long as they they don't develop symptoms and they're not overloading the the healthcare system and and stuff like that. But again, you you. I don't think it's a good idea just to have a a, a virus still creating in the in the population and just in, yeah. infecting young people. They, I, I think they said this is only one study as well, mm. but it's just like if they can, even if they don't transmit it to, they could still transmit it to their parents. I suppose that's their always the risk, and it could get out into the community. Yeah. Um. But if this is true, which it would be great, like that they don't really spread it to adults. Um, I'd, I'd like to see. Yeah, that would be that would be great. But I'd like to see the molecular mechanism of this pathology behind it. Why, uh, mm. if if someone could like, if if some research groups could prove it and and show the exact mechanism in which the the SARS-CoV-2 is not transmitted from children to adults, but it is transmitted between children and children, and then again is transmitted between adults and adults. Like I think. It's just so confusing to uh, yeah um, yeah. So that's why it's so hard to argue with all of the people who who go against the uh, you know safety precautions of wearing masks and stuff like that when they hate you with stuff like well, uh, children are get no symptoms. Why why do we have to keep them um, at home? And well, yeah. why yeah why can't we just send them to school? Well, the answer is, it's for the safety until we know better. Yeah. Yeah, there's still reasons to be cautious because there's still no proper systematic review available to investigate asymptomatic carriers in children. So, mm. yeah, but I think as well, they said hand washing is super important because in one systemic review, they showed that actually in the kids, they were able to, they were still shedding the virus in their stool. So, okay, that would be definitely one thing. But I think we all know to wash your hands for sure. Yeah, don't um, be a pig. And it's not just like because they, just because they're kids, maybe that they oh they don't spread it low. Make sure they do still wash their hands all the time. I mean, it's a good habit to have anyway. Like wash your hands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like it's gonna be some a massive negative drawback from this. You know, twenty years in the future. Oh no, I'm washing hands again. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It's a it's a good thing to have. Yeah. So yeah, that was all I just wanted to kind of touch on is just to try and help 
I suppose I haven't really said a lot, but at the same time, I just wanted to show that at the moment, it seems that in younger kids, it doesn't transmit as much. And in older ones, it kind of does. So uh, I would say just um, that they should wear face masks when they can in te- for teenagers. Yeah. And for younger kids that uh, I suppose just to be aware of what's going on. And um, at the moment, it doesn't seem like they are. But we will, I suppose, kind of keep an eye and see what or what happens. And if they do publish proper studies to link maybe uh, an outbreak to a child. But at the moment, they haven't seemed to have done that. So mm. I really think the risk is kind of low. Yeah. Maybe maybe we should uh, reach out to TikTokers on an influence <laughs> and teenage influencers, although it's risky reaching out to teenage people. But anyway, we should maybe reach out to them and ask them to promote wearing masks and make it make it cool and trendy so everybody else would do it. Yeah. Especially if only it got them more followers like or something, <laughs> they would you could incentivize them. Yes. Yes. Anything for that. Yeah. So that was all I wanted to say. What about your study about uh, one model treats all? No, what mm-hmm. was it again? It's Is a, that the right way? One drug for one person. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So I'm, I think I'm going to start with the title because within the title, there is something that I would like to explain before moving forward. So the title is again, patient customized oligonucleotide therapy for a rare genetic disease. Uh, patient customized means made specifically for the one patient oligonucleotide therapy it means that the therapy acts at the rna level not at the dna level so it's the the rna is in the middle between dna and the protein and the rare genetic disease uh maybe people well like the rare disease according to um explanation is a it's a disease that affects less than five patients per uh, 10,000 citizens. So it's really, it's really rare. Um, I think I already li- mentioned a little bit about uh, what personalized therapy is. It's basically you, you tailor your medicine towards the, uh, towards particular person or towards a particular group of persons that can show a, a certain phenotype of a disease. So I think Evan, you know, because you and me, we've been like working in the, in the hospital labs and um, so forth. So there's loads of uh, samples coming through. The tests are getting done. Based on the test, there is a diagnosis made, and then you have your you have your kind of uh, uh, drugs that have been for uh, that have been around forever. They are the gold standard, and they are given to people. Would you Would you agree that this is more or less how how it goes in most of the? Yeah, like it's just it's kind of I suppose it's kind of like cancer. You just uh, you use chemotherapy, which is it's like a just one model fits all approach to all different types so it's not very specific but i suppose it's just kind of it has its its benefits and you just kind of want to at the i suppose at the time it did help because there was nothing better yeah but But we move in towards times where these kind of things could be better designed and as i was looking a little bit about you know the the concept of the precision medicine or personalized medicine or tailored medicine uh, i actually find out that uh, on average any given prescription medication on the market only works for half of those who take it and for example yeah. antidepressants are effective only in about 60 percent of those who take it so this yeah. is uh this is this is crazy yeah that that, that one is 
like antidepressants is such a hard one to um mm. design because yeah brain yeah. chemistry and very <laughs> yeah, complicated brain, brain is not easy but then again if there, there are already a couple of drugs on the market that uh come under the umbrella of personalized medicine but i think if you ask people they wouldn't have a much idea mm. but um you you probably you know about this but uh, a, a drug knows herceptin which is an antibody oh, yeah. treatment for a, a breast cancer but it's not for any breast cancer it's only for the breast cancer with the expression of her2 protein yeah. so this is this is this is a form this is already form of um, maybe not personalized medicine but uh, definitely a precision medicine that was mm-hmm. like one of the OG uh, immunotherapies yes. that was developed. Or is this like the one that they show like this is the, this can work? Yes, exactly. So, uh, so this, this, this drug Herceptin, this antibody Herceptin is given to the patient to the, uh, who have breast cancer, but only breast cancer that has the expression of HER2 protein. So these, these personalized drugs are already on the market, but this, I'm going to tell you a story about the girl uh, which is completely fascinating. Uh, the girl is six year old and she suffers from battery disease, which is uh, a common form of the di- of disorders called neuronal steroid lipofusinosis. So I'm just gonna stick to batten disease because it's way easier oh, to bat- pronounce. I thought you said batter. I was like, what? Batten. B a t t e n. Batten disease. Oh. Okay. Um, so basically, so the girl is six year old. The uh, the disease starts kicking in. It does not show itself at the birth, so it's kind of a progressive. The older you get, the older the older you get, the, the worse the disease gets, and you have the symptoms of blindness, seizure, uh, muscle waste, wasting, and all of this kind of uh, uh, traumatic uh, symptoms. Of which I think uh, seizure is the worst one because as a parent you have to witness your your child. This girl was going up to thirty seizures a day, which lasted wow. longer than the minute. So imagine being a being Jesus. a parent. Yes. Uh, so they, they did a battery of tests on her. Uh, they are suspected mitochondrial or metabolic diseases. Uh, finally, uh, they, they narrow it down to the mutation, the MFSD8 gene. Uh, so they, they narrow down this mutation. Uh, but <laughs> tragically enough, that was not the, the pathogenic mutation that caused the phenotype. So they went back to the square one. Uh, they used this uh, technique called whole genome sequencing. Uh, so they literally analyzed the whole the, the whole genome of this girl, and they identified um, uh, an insertion inside an intron of, uh, that caused the phenotype. Uh, basically, that insertion uh, confused the um, the splicing mechanism, and the exons were not excised correctly from the from the genome. The the spliced material contained a pseudo exon. So I okay. I think that was a little bit too scientific, but well, I just for for people maybe to try and even just explain like their five. Okay. It's just basically what like one of the things I messaged last week messenger RNA. So basically, you have mRNA that uh, codes your proteins, uh, and when it goes to your ribosome, before it does, it needs to be. Uh, it's basically has a lot of junk in it. And you want to just cut out the junk and then put together the main like recipe, I suppose, if you want to say it like that. And uh, basically what happens is that it doesn't cut the junk out properly or chunk cuts out too much. And then it kind of assembles it wrong. And then because of this, it kind of leads to like yeah, transcription errors and 
Yes. That's why you don't get the proper protein. So in the case of this, in the case of this girl, it was the the the, the protein was not produced. This in this insertion that caused the splicing mechanism not to splice out the introns correctly out of the exons, um, and uh, hence that caused the uh, the phenotype. Yeah. And these the introns are sorry. The introns are the junk DNA, and the the exons are the the ones that actually have the the information. Okay, I'm just gonna like they're not completely junk DNA. There is lots of valuable okay. information, but they are not the coding part of the. Yeah of the DNA. But anyway, enough of this discussion. But these kind of uh, mutations that affect splicing are excellent, excellent target for antisense uh, therapy. So could you explain that even in more basic terms? It basically what? So you have a mutation in yeah. your intron. Uh, you apply oligonucleotide, which, which is complementary to the sequence, uh, to the targeted sequence. The oligonucleotide recognizes it because of the nucleotide com- compatibility it aligns itself next to that stretch and then uh, then it physically blocks it it literally what it does it physically blocks this specific stretch oh, of, okay. of so intron. it stops it getting it cut out uh, yes yes it stops from getting it cut out so then the spliceosome uh, go reverts itself to another place where it can introduce the uh, excision because that's what it does it looks for a consensus of sequence that is suitable that it that it recognizes and when it recognizes it's no there is a has there, i have to cut in here because of yeah. this specific sequence and and uh, th- when when you block the mutation the spliceosome recognizes the second best thing which in its case it's the correct it's the correct region goes to the correct region creates excision there and this is how the and this is how this whole intron is removed together with the mutation and this treatment for this specific girl was actually based on a drug already ac- uh, approved by FDA for um, spinal muscular atrophy. The drug is called Nusinersen, and it works on the on the on the similar principle of it's also an oligonucleotide drug. So uh, they look at the similarities between the uh, Nusinersen and what they wanted to develop, and they said, well, if this drug was FDA approved, let's just m- make it similar technically to what we want to do and let and let's test it out and this is exactly what they did they designed uh, they designed a couple of oligonucleotides they tested it first in the fibroblasts you could obtain them from skin biopsies as with every uh, study to develop drug you start at the cell level and they they proved that three of the pool of the drug of the oligonucleotides they designed increased the ratio of the correct mRNA versus the incorrect mRNA. So that showed that blocking this mutation inside intron, it works. Uh, the, the one that was most effective was called Milasen. And um, very quickly uh, from, the, from the cell model, they went on to test it in, the, um, in rats. Uh, and that was that was like uh, that was like super super quickly uh, because you have to remember that this girl is continuously suffering from the symptoms, yeah. and uh, and she's just um, and she is about to die. Uh, when when she was seven years old, her condition was getting progressively worse. This is this is more or less the stage when they were testing it in the fibroblasts and and barely moving to the animal studies. Her ability to speak was completely gone. 
she was she she couldn't swallow anymore and uh, at this point the seizures were so intense that uh, she needed like support to walk and uh, and the seizures were like up to 30 a day on a regular basis and the, roughly the people would die at the age of 11 years so like the researchers and the med- medical team was really was under pressure yeah yes. the deadline so uh, where was so this in america in was boston america? yeah oh. And uh, so now, so they get, they get it into the rats, they testing it in rats, they, they observing some um, side effect in rats and I think, oh no, oh no. But then uh, they study the rats a little bit more and they see that after 24 hours uh, since the injection, the, the side effects are gone. So they, they said like, it looks good to us and they start the clinical trials. Uh, of the based, one person. <laughs> oh, oh, for the one person, they started clinical trials and um, the starting dose was 3.5 milligrams and they worked the way up to 42 milligrams, which basically means that they were increasing the dose every two weeks. But it's so weird because you can't even call it a clinical trial because she's the only patient and you can't give her the placebo. So (laughs) it's just like you have to just try this experimental drug. Exactly. They just... uh, they they just decided to give it to her and you know because she needed it and it was the only way it was the only way to save her and um she had she didn't experience any adverse effects there was no clinically significant adverse effects pharmacokinetics analysis indicated a a, a general trend of dose proportional increase in drug levels in cerebrospinal fluid so the way the the drug was administered is was is it had to get into the uh, cerebrospinal fluid because you you know this is where the the mutation was having the main yes and this is where the phenotype was originating as well you know the seizures and what's not it's all it's all in the brain it's all in in there so they had to so they were injecting her literally into into the back of her head, into the brain to administer the drugs. This is the CSF. And she has been on the drug. The MRI revealed in continuous brain volume loss, but this was, they were kind of expecting that because it was also shown in the animal studies. The brain volume continued to drop, although the treatment slowed down the progress of symptoms. I but think what was, but brain loss is in her brain is being degraded or something like that? I didn't look at that, so I can't. I did. I can't exactly tell what it means. The brain volume loss. I think it should be something between the gray and white matter. Maybe, maybe portion of maybe some of that was was getting degraded or was dying off. I suppose if she was getting seizures and she couldn't walk and swallow, I think there was so, there had to be associated with the with the death of neurons. Mm. So that could be a that could be the effect of that. One reason. Yeah. Um, they had to find a way to um, assess assess her neurologic and neurophysiological scoring. So this used this this is what is called Wineland and Adaptive Behavior Scales. It's basically a questionnaire, and based on the answers, uh, they score her. And yeah. they were they were looking at things like communication, daily living skills, socialization. And they were, and within these three groups, they had divided it into receptiveness, expressive, and written. So you have a communication from the perspective of recipient, uh, expressive communication, and written communication. And the same thing goes for the daily living skills, socialization. What it showed before the treatment, before the treatment commenced, seven out of the 11 neurologic and neurophysiological subscores showed it declined. Two remained the same and two improved. Uh. 
and uh, subscore sta stabilized after initiation of the treatment uh, up to three months. So you, so they gave her, they were given their treatment up to three months, and there they run the assessment. So three, three of these declined, six remained the same, and two improved. And from three months to six months, uh, four has declined, uh, two remained the same, and five has improved. So mm. you can already see that maybe on her... There's a trade-off in a way. Yeah, so it's not like a magic bullet that fixes everything, but it definitely, it, it is, I think it is saving her because the seizures that were uh, up to uh, 30 seizures a day lasting up to two minutes uh, after the course of the administration of the drugs, uh, she dropped down between zero to 20 seizures, all lasting less than a minute. Wow. So, you know, it's, I think, like, visually, if you are a parent and you sit next to this girl and you don't see her going into the seizures for two minutes, uh, it's something, uh, it's something That's to be thankful for, you know? And I was watching, like, YouTube uh, videos interviewing the mother. The girl obviously is not well enough like to speak or to anything like that and the mother says that they had uh, they have a better days and they have worse days they have better months and worse months so it's all kind of a it's all still fluctuating it definitely yeah. just just because they administer this drug to her it doesn't mean that the um that she's she's cured i think she's still being treated she definitely still being treated uh but she's i think she's the first patient to have a drug developed for her in the in the space of like a year or so yeah which is which is crazy you going through the um, cell uh cell-based assessments then you quickly move on to the animal studies and then and then you just write a letter to fda and they, they it uh, apparently it took some convincing but they say yeah let, let's go and uh, and yeah. they start administrating this this drug to her and uh, it's also nice to see because the uh, oligonucleotherapy is something that I'm trying to develop and to see how, how much potential this form of treatment has. It's really uh, invigorating. Like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm ready to go. If anybody wants to find out more about this girl and how her treatment is going or about the drug itself, you can visit the website uh, www.milasmiracle.org and uh, you can you can find out more about her story how she's doing more about more about the drug if there was a on only thing that i had to pick up from the paper itself as in uh, why they did it a certain way it was um, it seemed a little bit risky to base the whole drug design on a, another drug that's okay. It, uh, the Nusi Nersen, this is, this is what they base their therapy on. It, uh, it's, but it's a completely different drug for uh, like a muscle disease. And, and they just decided, they just went ahead and they said like, because it has similar mode of action, we should, we should risk it and design our drugs the same. It, given that it was, it, was, it was tested before it was administered to her, but it's just on its own, it seemed like, kind of risky move there to uh, to go ahead and and, and do it yeah. that way yeah sure. it's always it's kind of like a an emotional thing to like oh but like any treatment would be better but at the same time you want her just to die yeah painfully so um yeah, yeah it's it's kind of a tough it's uh tough yeah. one to decide but I, what other question i wanted to ask like because 
um so they were putting the drug into the csf so mm-hmm. would they, they it's like a would it be only a one-off treatment like because you don't need to keep giving her the drug you do you do yeah because uh maybe i didn't emphasize this enough the uh, oligonucleotide they work at the rna level so I you're not actually correcting the mutation at the dna so the uh, mutation keeps getting transcribed you just stopping it from being translated okay you just fixing the problem at the RNA level and the oligonucleotides, they have a, they have a half-life. They will get degraded. Uh, it's given because it's a, C- a central uh, spinal fluid is, uh, the degradation rate, I think is not as quickly as it would be, for example, in the liver, uh, or in the systemic uh, administration of the drug. But ne- nevertheless, this, the, the drug still is getting degraded. You, you, you have to be re-injected with the drug uh, every now and then. Uh, but she is on, she will be treated for her entire life. She will have to receive these injections. Mm. Maybe and it's gonna... not like a, it's not like an easy drug to be taken if it's getting uh, injected into your, yeah. into your CSF. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely, well, it probably is not the, the most pleasant one, but you know, if having, having go through that, on the regular basis, whether, you know, not being alive, it's, yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's, <laughs> it's uh, not much of a decision. It, it also depends what kind of quality of life. To, like I wish her all the best and, you know, I'm amazed with the whole story and how it come across, but, um, uh, I wish, I wish her uh, condition will get better. The longer the treatment, it's going to be there. Um, hopefully at, at, at some point she'll be able to tell her story herself, which would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Um but the fact that like some of it of these factors are going down means that maybe Yeah. It might be stopping the seizures, but maybe it's like her mental capacity might be affected or something, I don't know. Yeah, could be could the mental capacity definitely, especially if they if they if they mention the brain volume loss. I wish the there'd be so neuroscientists that could maybe say something about this what what does it mean and what what are the consequences of it uh i'm sure there are like people who have parts of their brain excised for different reasons like a tumor or what's not and they still are like functioning adults mm, yeah so you know i think the the brain physiology is so complicated and she's still very young i suppose and maybe. she is very young yeah yeah but yeah. it just it just shows you know how personalized medicine uh, can help the you know mm. studying of the genome targeting the treatment specifically for this girl because there was nothing else available for her yeah but i still think cost wise and just an argument against to be like oh it's so expensive and all this stuff but i still think like this is like the foundation for building on this so mm. like to say that it's a waste of money i think it's not a good argument because it can be used for so many other diseases and um, even though it's only one person now, this could be go on to tr- help a lot more people like this work. So yeah. I think uh, cost-wise shouldn't be a, an argument against doing this. Yeah, um, I know no, it's definitely. kind of weird because it's only one person and you're like, when, how could this ever be used again? But again, yeah, it's, it's, it's super important. Every kind of research like this is important, especially with genetic diseases. So Yeah, but it's um, now if somebody asks you, do you know any genetic, because I don't think p- people know about genetic treatments being available on the market. Um, and I think if they hear genetic treatment, they think 
once you have genetic treatment applied to you, everything is everything you're fixed, mm. everything is done. But like, you know, it it's not a magic wand. It doesn't work like that. And this is the example yeah. of it. Like it definitely helps this girl, but it it didn't well, it didn't cure her completely. And um yeah, but the uh, it works and hopefully she's gonna get better. Yeah, yeah. Well, best of luck to her. Yeah. And uh to the researchers in where was it? Where was this done? Like, whereabouts in Boston? Uh, so uh, I think it was Division of Genetics and Genomics at Boston Children's Hospital. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a, it's affiliated, it's affiliated with the Harvard University. Um, of course. Yes. Well, it is in Boston. It is in Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, but, or MIT. Um, yeah, or MIT. And I, and I went, I, I looked up the, 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 the leader of this group. Almost everyone on his, on his team is like. <laughs> It's a MIT or Harvard uh, alumni, so yeah, yeah, pretty. I I can tell it's I, you can tell it's a very ambitious, ambitious team, and then we're probably gonna hear from them more often. Yeah, yeah. Well, you will, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For I your will. project for your PhD. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. Oh, that was cool. That was interesting. So, um, yeah. On that note, I think that was today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um. Exactly. Is there any other comments you wanted to make? Well, I just want to say uh, thank you for wanting more today than you did yesterday. <laughs> very, very wise. You didn't come up with that quote. No, I stole it from Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> okay. Neil the Smoke Grace. Neil <laughs> the Smoke Tyson. Yes, yes. Well, any, in any way, thank you guys for tuning in. Hope you, uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, um please let us know uh what else we should cover please we love feedback i still think we haven't had a lot of feedback yeah. so yeah don't be afraid to comment on our instagram yeah twitter at skeptically inclined uh and on you can even email us interesting papers it's skeptically inclined at gmail.com again exactly. skeptically with a c yeah and next episode we'll uh we'll have some more science some hopefully more breakthroughs on and yeah again thanks for listening thanks for listening bye bye bye